my name is Gino Martini. I'm the chief scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Now, today our guest is Professor Trevor Jones, a renowned pharmaceutical scientist and a dear friend. With my colleague Sir Cahill, the chief pharmacist clinical research fellow. Trevor, welcome. Thank you very much. I obviously know you very well, and a lot of pharmacists know you very well. But is it an opportunity here to just give other members of the RPS a bit of a background to who you are? Sure. Well, my big career was with Wellcome as Global R&D Director. And before that, I was at Boots as Head of Development. And before that, I was uh, teaching at Nottingham University. And before that, I was a graduate from Chelsea College, now King's College, in pharmacy. More recently, uh, after the takeover of uh, Wellcome by Glaxo, I became Director General of the ABPI. And in recent, very recent years, I was on the board of Allergan. And now I'm involved in a lot of small startup biotechs, both as an investor as well as um, helping them to run it. So when you're at Welcome, Trevor, I believe there were some important drugs that you developed and discovered? Well, my team there were really spectacular in terms of their ability to find entirely new ways of treating disease, and particularly, of course, the very first ever drug for HIV-AIDS virus, and that was AZT retrovir. And we'd just done a, another um, antiviral drug, Zovirax for herpes infections and indeed uh, interferon. So there was a history there of viruses and virology. But equally, we developed a lamotrigine for epilepsy and drugs like uh, atracurium with the University of Strathclyde Pharmacy Department for anesthesia. So a wealth of those. And for me, very importantly, drugs for malaria, malarone in particular. So many people that realise to discover and put a medicine on the market is quite rare, and you've actually done quite a huge amount. I'll just hand over to Sarah Cahill who will ask you the next question. Sarah? What has been kind of farmers and academia's response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, it's been spectacular. Uh, when you think about the fact that we really only knew about this virus and its infectious pandemic potential in December and January of this year, Suddenly, the industry has come together to share information, data. Uh, we've created facilities to do that, but equally to share molecules to see if we can find medicines that were already in our cupboards but are not yet developed that we could repurpose to hit various parts of the infective uh, progress, um, as well as sharing information on the clinical trials that are in progress. So that's really been a spectacular coming together of uh, people in the industry. And I have to say, academia has been equally munificent in doing that. What academia has done, as well as government institutes like the NIH in America, over here in the UK, the NIHR, is really put together the facility to actually test some of our new ideas, to repurpose of our compounds, and prioritize the treatments that we are looking at. One of the reasons we do these chief scientists broadcasts and there's been the emphasis on the industry is that we know that this virus, there's been no effective treatment to date, up to maybe last week. And that's why I think it's very important that people understand that the great work the industry does in collaboration with academia and that, you know, by working well together, we can actually treat COVID-19. So is there any chance you could give us an update as to what actually is going on right now? What medicines are in development, whether it's in industry, whether it's in academia or both? And what, what stage are they are in development and when you see a prediction when they can come out? Yes, I think we must remember that, you know, unlike a bacterial infection, which, you know, has a locus and you get an antibacterial and kill it and cure that, that condition, the infection with a coronavirus, in particular this one, is really a progressive condition, starting with the, infe the infective organism and progressing to often severe acute respiratory effects and maybe effects on the heart and the gut. So this isn't just about killing the virus. It's treating 
the various stages as the virus does its dirty work in the body. So basically, there are two ways of looking at this. What therapeutic agents can we use to kill the virus? What therapeutic agents can we use to support the inflammatory processes that then occur? And then separately, uh, how do we develop a, a vaccine to stop this happening again, or hopefully to prevent it spreading further? So let's start with the antivirals. As I mentioned, my team at Wellcome discovered and developed drugs for viral infections such as HIV AIDS and for herpes infections. And some of those obviously are based upon a similar biology to the COVID-19. But these antivirals have to be very specific to a particular virus. So the nearest we've seen in recent years is the SARS virus epidemic in, in, in China again about 2002. And a number of companies got together and tried to find antivirals against the SARS virus. And we've been trying those recently against COVID-19 with some early success. It's very early days, but it says that it is possible to potentially repurpose some of the molecules that we've done, put into animals, but haven't yet tested against this actual infection. So there's a big program going on to share molecules, to screen them with academic groups and see if any of those have got the real potential. So whilst we're looking to repurpose some of the existing antivirals, understanding the actual biology of this virus is starting to help us find entirely new antivirals that we think in the end, with combinations of course, will be the solution to the ongoing problem that this could provide. So right now there are hundreds of molecules being studied and only a few of those will emerge. Many of them are still in the very preclinical stage. And just because they kill the virus doesn't mean they're necessarily safe. So it's going to take some months to go through these screens and pick the ones that look to be the most likely entirely new antivirals. Now, the second way of looking at this is as this disease progresses and the lungs get inflamed and the body starts to react against the virus, and floods out cytokines, then what you need to do is to suppress those activities using immunomodulators. And there's a superb amount of work going on right now in terms of uh, inhibiting IL-6 and uh, IL-1 and interferon. So you're calming the storm, if you will, of the cytokines that are there. Third category is um, using antibodies. First of all, to sort of grab hold of the virus to stop it actually attacking the, the cells of the body but also to neutralize some of these cytokines that are occurring in the flood of the uh, disease. And beyond that, as you heard recently, using supportive therapy for things like inflammatory states. You heard recently of using some steroids that are very uh, widely used and suppressing some of those in inflamed responses in very severe conditions. Obviously, if you suppress the immune system too early, it's not going to be able to produce the immune response you want. But eventually, when you've got this massive immune uh, hyperinflammatory effect, then using those steroids is going to be a combination way forward. So that's the therapeutic approach, if you will, antivirals, immunomodulators, antibody therapy, uh, supportive therapy, and combinations of those. And quite separately, and the big fight and big rush has been to find ways of producing vaccines. Now, there are currently 142 different vaccines at stages of development, and 13 of those are in humans being looked at to see if they're adequately safe, 
and a further 20 or 30 of those will go into humans in the next few months. So, as you know, when you discover a new uh, drug, the first thing is to find out whether it's safe enough to administer. And that's very important with a vaccine, because if you get that wrong and the body reacts in a massively overreactive uh, way, then, you know, that's not safe. So what we're doing is taking these different vaccines, putting them into volunteers, and seeing if they are actually safe enough to administer. And you've probably read in the papers the, in the UK, the ones from Oxford and the ones from Imperial College, and the same is occurring in China and America. They're right now in dozens of, of subjects, usually healthy young people, and they're looking very good. The next phase of that is going to expand it to hundreds of people, probably July, September, and see whether that safety aspect is, is relevant to a broader population by age and by ethnicity. And we expect those and more vaccines to go through that phase uh, during the autumn and winter. Now, meanwhile, some of these vaccines look so promising in terms of the ability to produce this immune response that companies and people like the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Foundation, British government and others have actually started to stockpile some of these so that we could get hopefully hundreds of millions of these vaccines ready as soon as possible. Now, if they don't work, we throw them away. It's expensive, but at least uh, with a chance. If they do work, the big question is, should we then test them, just put them into use and see if they actually go to work? Normally, you put them into an at-risk population against the placebo and determine whether the active arm is producing the benefit that you expect. I don't think we can wait for that in this case. And we really need to be able to put some of these vaccines that are adequately safe into real populations and hope that that, in the fullness of evaluation, actually does protect them. Somebody said recently, you know, there's never been a placebo-controlled trial on a parachute. I mean, in those kind of emergencies, you know, you have to trust some of the science and carry on. So I think what we're going to see is by the fall, a number of these, a very few of these vaccines being more widely used than the traditional way of a full phase three clinical study. Oh, thank you, Charles. I mean, I think obviously the hunt of vaccines are very important. And I, I think I tend to agree with you by, by the autumn that we probably will see some kind of usage, a wider usage of the vaccine. Because last week we had all this uh, announcement about dexamethasone, you know, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because one thing I've noticed with COVID-19 has been how, thing, how things change so quickly, like with ibuprofen, you know, you can't use it, you can use it. Now it's even been used for treatment for COVID-19. And then, of course, with steroids, there was a bit of a, should we say, some confusion as to whether you should use a steroid or not. But clearly, last week, the recovery trial, there's evidence to show that it can work in, in certain segments of patient population. What's your view on that? Is that something that you've seen yourself in your investigations? Well, I think it's important to recognise that early on in the study of COVID-19 infections, people tried anything in small populations. It was really a scattergun approach, and that isn't the way to do it. I mean, I admire people who want to try that, but in the end, you have to go the route of science. So if you think about the use of steroids, if you use them too early and suppress the body's immune response, that's not going to help you develop immunity. But if you get to this serious point where you're on a ventilator, and you know that your, your lung condition is so inflamed, then why not try a variety of drugs that could help that situation? Whether they're the oxidative stress drugs and the steroids, because we know classically these steroids work very well in inflammatory conditions. 
and other anti-inflammatories you say like ibuprofen maybe are a bit too dangerous or don't have a dangerous potential side effects for that condition so here was a well-proven safe drug given at the right time against these severe patients which the early data looks to be very promising it's not the answer to all the conditions but certainly in that population looks good and if that's the case then other antioxidative drugs other anti-inflammatories may well be as powerful or more powerful than than that steroid so we've kind of mentioned the steroids obviously the vaccines is there any other drugs in development or repurposed drugs that you think is of interest three months into the pandemic that we should be thinking of well i think i mentioned the antibody therapy i think that's probably going to be the quickest to demonstrate the potential for quite good breakthrough therapy as i say one of the things is you imagine this virus it can only live within a human cell it's unlike a bacteria that can live in any kind of broth this virus can only live by taking command of a human cell and reproducing inside the cell so the first thing it's got to do is to adhere to the surface of a human cell and then it goes in and takes command of the reproductive process and then creates the ability to form new viruses and shoot them out to go and do their dangerous work. So if you can use an antibody to grab hold of the virus in the body and stop it penetrating cells, you're really doing something quite dramatic. And there's some very interesting antibody clinical studies coming up. Equally, you can use chemical small molecules to stop that adhering process. And some of the new antivirals that we're looking at are in that category of preventing the adhesion of the cell. So I think that's probably the nearest set of studies that we're going to see some results probably by the end of the year. And I suppose you know, there are many actors involved. We've talked about the industry, we've talked about academia, and I suppose the role of the regulators, like the FDA, EMEA, MHRA. Have you seen greater collaboration between industry and academia in, in, this, in this pandemic? What's your view? Well, absolutely. I uh, formed 25 years ago a group called the Hever Group because we met at Hever Castle in, uh, uh, in England. And um, I pulled together half a dozen research directors when I was a welcome R&D director to see whether we could do some pre-competitive work together to work on substances where and topics that, although we could do them individually in our laboratories or in academia, in partnership, we could do it much more effectively hopefully to understand the issues more clearly, to reduce the attrition in phase two and three, and to speed the time of getting products to the market. And that HEVA group meets every year, I convene it, and it's the top 10 to 15 R&D directors of the world with the NIH, with the FDA, and with the EMA, and with Gates. As soon as this COVID-19 pandemic hit us, we got together and said, what can we do? And a group under the um, leadership of Andy Plump from Takeda, formed something called the COVID-19 Consortium. And those are the group that pooled their resources and worked with the NIH and with other government bodies to actually look at repurposing screening. NIH came in and said, let's do some animal models for you. The, you know, we've got to test these with macaques or with, with ferrets. Uh, and others came in and said, well, we can do the preclinical sort of pharmaceutical stuff. So that collaboration has been incredible, and it led the governments of America and the European Union EMA to create pathways, speedy pathways, to get these things into the clinic. In America, it's called Operation Warp Speed, very appropriate, and Janet Woodcock's running that. She was from the FDA. Over in the um, EMA, they've created 
advisory panels, rapid access to help people as well in terms of how to construct their trials. And very importantly now, to prioritize the trials. You can imagine there are, of course, thousands of patients in different conditions, but there are equally hundreds and hundreds of people wanting to do different studies. So in the UK, the NIHR is prioritizing the trials that we can do with the limited patients we've got. The same in America and gradually the same overseas. So governments have responded brilliantly in creating rapid pathways to the clinic and in prioritizing those that they feel, based on good science, have the best chance of success. So that question actually quite links up. So did you ever think in your career or in your lifetime that the pharma companies would work kind of collaboratively in partnership to coordinate such a joint up response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, I think so. You know, about um, this HEVA group that I mentioned, we decided when we sequenced the human genome that we couldn't do that as individuals and there was so much potential there that we better find a way of creating a consortium in, to do that to work. And we created the SNP consortium to see whether any of the uh, nucleotides there sequences could be indicative of the disease condition and hence targets for drugs. More recently, through the leadership of Paul Stoffels at uh, Johnson & Johnson, when he was chairman of HEVA with me, uh, we created a pandemic awareness activity, which became eventually CEPI, consortium of people who felt that if we don't get our act together, academia, industry, USA, Europe, China, elsewhere, we are going to be hit with this kind of pandemic. So CEPI was created, took a long time, but that already started to look at drugs for Ebola and vaccines for Ebola and SARS. So I was pretty sure that once we get something like this COVID-19 pandemic, that those examples could be very useful in creating these, these consortia. You know what, though? Right now, we need a lot more academic studies on the biology of this virus and the biology disease. It's all very well picking antiviral drugs or antibodies or supportive therapy, but we've got to understand the, the real vi virology and biology of this, like we have now with HIV. And that is where academia, working with industry and governments, can really score. So anybody who's listening to this, who's researching in the field of virology, please, please, can you put as much effort as possible into understanding this rather vicious virus? Yeah, and it's a very poignant way of, of kind of ending the, the podcast because we, you know, everyone talks about Bill Gates, and Bill Gates actually did warn about this, didn't he, about three or four years well, ago? Well, he did, actually. Um, there were several people, President Obama warned about it, but it was his really call to arms in 2015 that we didn't really listen to. And then 2017, a group of people got together at the um, Davos summit, of the pharmaceutical industry with governments and said, let's create this initiative CEPI. But if you see that film Contagion, which was done at the time of the SARS, it's very, very interesting how much of that has come true. So I hope that now we'll listen again to Bill Gates's message and continue our preparedness. This isn't going to be the only pandemic. There will be more. And you know what? If we can do this for COVID-19, I wonder whether we could also do it for the AMR, you know, the, the antimicrobial resistance challenge. There's not likely to be much money to be made by a pharmaceutical company in the field of antimicrobial resistance drugs. They're going to be held back until every, everything else fails and people aren't going to want to pay big premium prices. 
there are already several initiatives there, but I just wonder whether we couldn't reignite that kind of initiative and do the same for AMR. No, I'd agree with you. I mean, there are two things that need to be addressed, and I think the greater cooperation, and that's a very important word, cooperation, not anti-competitive behaviour, working together. So look at VEVE, you know, which is GSK, Pfizer, and Shinogi, all the HIV treatments, all the combinations. And I think we've seen working together collaboratively for the better good obviously stimulates drug discovery and drug development. But also, I think, Joe, I don't know what you think, but, you know, with the vaccine situation, you know, it's, it was really passionate to see Professor Gilbert at Oxford say, first time into human, but then also hear frustration that they couldn't scale up the vaccine production. That's why they're making a vaccine facility. So I think we need to do more in-house, more in the UK. Have you got a view on that? Well, undoubtedly, you know, when you look at the big international organisations like Gates did an incredible job with their programme and Welcome too have said, we'll spend large sums of money with the industry. You, you, you know, making a vaccine is not just like making a cake. It's got all the GMP stuff. So the industry's got the skill base to do it. And these other organizations are prepared to fund uh, some of this because it's not going to be uh, for profit. So Gates, Gavi, the IMI initiative, CEPI, and I would hope WHO, uh, now that you know they've responded fairly rapidly now to this pandemic, I think we need to get that group together with the industry leaders and say, what is the lesson that we've learned from this about how we should continue to collaborate in both discovery, in understanding the biology, in development, and particularly, as you say, in manufacture. That traditionally, when we've made a vaccine, we've taken the virus or the bacteria and we just sort of gently cooked it so that it's losing its ability to reproduce, but it keeps the protein structure largely intact. And when you stick that into the body, the body doesn't like it and makes an immune response and you get immunity. The other way has been to just slightly compromise that virus by attenuating it. Now, more recently, especially as a result of looking at the SARS virus and Ebola, what we've been able to do is take bits of the virus, subunits like the spike proteins from the surface of the COVID-19 or subunit proteins or the bits of the RNA and use those as the trigger for our immune system. Now, we've had to deliver those with you know, microemulsions and so on. A huge amount of pharmaceutical science goes into that. But these different vaccines that are being developed are based on different technologies. And some will not be as potent as others. And so will not adduce the kind of adequate response. But, you know, so we mustn't think of the vaccine as that vaccine equals a vaccine equals a vaccine. They'll be different. And the interesting thing is going to be not only the speed of producing these, but which of them really are the ones that we then have to scale up to, frankly, to vaccinate the world. Trevor, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great honour. On behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, I know you're a very busy guy. Thank you for taking the time out to give this wonderful overview of the treatment options for COVID-19. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I want to just say that, you know, the pharmacists are at the front line of this pandemic with the medics and nurses and so on. And I want to thank them and congratulate them on their immense contribution to what's going on out there in the real world. Trevor, those words coming from you, it means a lot to me personally, and it means a lot to a lot of members of the RPS. Thank you again. Thanks, Gino. Thanks, Sarah.